was the first supper, in a sense, celebrating Jesus' death. And so, uh, if you are serving this morning with the Lord's Supper, I will tell you when you should uh, go and, and start preparing, sort of like Jesus told the disciples when they should go and start preparing. So, we're in Mark 14. Now, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for a long time, and we're finally at this, this last section in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Everything uh, up till now has been talking about Jesus' ministry, but for a while now we've been looking at how, how Jesus has turned His face to Jerusalem and has resolved to go to Jerusalem, and He's been telling His disciples that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, and He's going to be arrested and beaten, and then He's going to be crucified, and on the third day He's going to rise, and the disciples don't really get it, but they're following Jesus. And now we're we're here, we're in Jerusalem, and Mark 14 is the beginning of what's called the passion narrative. And passion just means suffering. So we're the beginning of the, the story of the suffering and death of Christ, and this will occupy the rest of Mark's gospel. Now, the gospel writers spend an, uh, what might appear to us to be an inordinate amount of time talking about the last week and more specifically the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. If you compare it to the total time they spend talking about other things in the Gospels, I think if you're writing a biography, you want to try to give uh, the same weight to, to every area of a person's life. They spend way more time talking about the last week and the last 24 hours of Jesus' life than anything else, to the point where one commentator said that the Gospel of Mark is like it's really just a narrative of the death and resurrection of Jesus with an extended introduction. And the other gospel writers are like that too. See, the gospel writers knew, like the early church, that the single most important thing about Jesus wasn't His miracles, it wasn't His teaching, it was His death, His dying and rising again, and so they wrote their gospels accordingly. This is unique to Christianity. No other religious movement in the world has as its central doctrine and focal point the death of its founder. Most other religions are based on the lessons that a person teaches, the wisdom they leave behind. For Christianity, it's these historic events of the death and resurrection of Christ to the point where Paul would say, if Christ didn't die and rise again, then Christianity is meaningless, and we're foolish to follow Christ. But why is Jesus' death so important? Right, we sing about the power of the cross. You have to understand, in the, in the first century, to say something like that would be foolish. There's no power in the cross. The cross is an emblem of shame. It's where criminals die. See, from a purely human perspective, Jesus' death looks like it was a tragic mistake, a promising career that was cut short by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Imagine if Jesus had lived past his early 30s, what more he would have done. One author said that the death of Jesus was really more like a car wreck. It was an accident of history. Was that really the case? Are we just building our faith on an accident of history? 
Did the followers of Jesus just make up these things that were true about the death of Christ afterwards in order to explain how their hopes were dashed and and yet still try to draw something out of it? Or was there something more that was going on? And so this morning, as we look at uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 25, we're going to see two things. First, Jesus' death was indeed the result of a sinful plot. But second, Jesus' death ultimately was the result of a sovereign plan. So let's pray together, and we'll look at the text. Father, you are infinitely more willing to give than we are even to ask. And so, Lord, we ask that you might give us insight into what you've caused to be written for our instruction, so that we might believe what it teaches and obey what it commands and trust what it promises, and that Jesus in it might be glorified. We pray it in His name. Amen. First, Jesus' death was the result of a sinful plot. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, the Passover and the unleavened bread, that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, were two days away. We're talking about Wednesday during the week that Jesus is here in Jerusalem. It's Wednesday. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. The leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They really wanted to do this since early in the gospel. The first time we see it is in Mark 3. He's begun to challenge them, and at the end end of this story in Mark 3 of how Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. It says that the leaders began to take counsel together how they might destroy him. They they want to kill him because he's been overturning their traditions and breaking their rules. He cleansed the temple and called it a den of thieves. Then he talked about its destruction. He's been publicly chastising them and basically running circles around them in debates. He's popular as a messianic figure and a presumptive king, not because of what he's saying, but because of what others are saying about him. Remember, it's only a few days before this that Jesus enters Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. People are ready to make him king, and ultimately they want to kill him because he claims authority that belongs only to God, which is a problem unless he's God. But they wanted to kill him quietly. They didn't want to cause an uproar. See, the Passover was a volatile time in Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem grew between four and 500% during the Passover festival as everybody came to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so you already had a lot of people packed into a very small area. Remember, the Jews are not especially happy that the Romans are in control. And so there's always potential during these festivals for for uprisings, and so much so that the Roman governor, Pilate, would move from his headquarters in Caesarea up the coast to Jerusalem to make sure that there was nothing that would happen. See, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes in Jerusalem worried that Jesus' popularity, and he was clearly a very popular teacher, would cause a riot. If if they were to, to take him in public and kill him, It could cause an uprising, and if it caused an uprising, 
and the Romans would swoop in and sweep everything out, they would lose their power. This is exactly what happened in 70 A.D., years later. The priests are worried about it now, and so they're thinking, how can we kill Jesus, who they feared, but keep our power? So they begin to plot together how they can kill Jesus. And then Mark does something that he's done throughout the gospel. He, he sandwiches a story between two others. So verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 sort of tell one story, and in between them, verses 3 and 9 tell a very different story. Let's look at verses 3 and 9. The sinful plot was devised by the religious leaders, but, but it's also now contrasted with this woman's devotion. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. So the woman who we learn from the parallel account in the Gospel of John is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she brings this, this bottle of, of perfume, it's called pure nard, so it was from this, uh, this plant that was native to India, so it's probably imported, and it's in an alabaster vial, which means this is where you put the best perfume. This is probably a family heirloom of some kind. And she doesn't just open the vial and pour it on Jesus, she breaks it and pours it on Jesus. It means nothing can ever be put in this vial again. And she pours it all on Him. It's an extravagant gift. It's also an extravagant act in itself because she's come into the dinner where she probably culturally wouldn't have been allowed and done this in public. She, she risks not only her retirement fund with this very expensive perfume, but also her social reputation to come in and to anoint Jesus, to bless Him. Regardless of what Mary knew about what she was doing, and it's not entirely clear, at the very least it demonstrates that she thought Jesus was worth more than her most valuable possession and her reputation among others. And I wonder if that's the way you think about Jesus. The contrast that Mark creates with this story is, is pretty stark. Um, Mary's devotion to Jesus is contrasted with the, the plotter's sinful conspiracy. Look at verse 4. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For the perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. That, that amount of money would have been about a year's worth of wages for somebody. And so, uh, thinking about the medium in, uh, median income in America, think um, this woman came in and broke an expensive bottle and dumped $50,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. And it says some were indignant. We learn from the other gospel that this is the disciples, and specifically we learn from the gospel of John that the one who is saying this is Judas. 
So Judas, pretending to be pious, says, we could have sold this and given it to the poor. Now, John tells us the reason he said that wasn't because he cared about the poor. It was because he kept the money bag. He was the treasurer. And if they sold it in order to give it to the poor, the money would go into his bag and then he could take from it. He doesn't care about the poor. He cares about himself. And so... Jesus then goes on and, and, and explains something of what has just happened. That Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you. Whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. So Jesus knows that he's about to die. It's not clear whether or not Mary knows that that's what she's doing. That's what Jesus says has happened. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. And then verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. So this woman's devotion acts as, uh, acts as the backdrop to this, this wicked plot against Jesus. Like a dark back cloth is used to display the brilliance of a diamond, Mark sort of does the reverse. He puts this, this extraordinary, extravagant act of devotion here between these terrible acts of treachery to show just how wicked it really is. And so Judas then completes the sinful plot. He goes to betray Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that he went to the chief priests and the scribes and he says, what will you give me if I betray him? So Judas is frustrated by the loss of potential funds. It would seem that Mark is tying these things together. After observing what, what the woman has done, he, he goes and he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to betray Jesus. And we know from the other Gospels, he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He loses out on, on 300 denarii, and he is willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Mary has shown what she thinks Jesus is worth, everything. Judas has shown what he thinks Jesus is worth, almost nothing. Mary's devotion is sort of the last straw for Judas. It pushes him over the edge. He, he's been intending to betray Jesus, and now this is the last straw. Just like the religious leaders' lust for power has led them to want to kill Jesus, Judas' lust for money has led him to become complicit in the plot. For Judas, Jesus has outlived his usefulness. And so he goes in order to betray him to them. Verse 11, they were glad when they heard this and they promised to give him money. And he began seeking an opportunity, an opportune time to betray him. And Judas chooses money over the Messiah. And it seems that Judas's, or Jesus' fate is sealed. And if we were to stop here, and only read this, it might seem like Jesus is just a nice guy who gets 
caught up in something he didn't intend and he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right? For, from a purely human perspective, it looks like things are spinning out of control for Jesus. And so if we stopped here, maybe we would say that Jesus' death does appear to be a tragic accident. But we don't stop here. As we look at the rest of the passage, we see that Jesus' death was not simply the result of this sinful plot. It was also, and more crucially, the result of God's sovereign plan. God was working behind and through and above all of these circumstances, including even the treacherous plotting of Judas and the religious leaders to accomplish his purposes. The death of Jesus was no tragic accident. It was the sovereign plan of God. Jesus has alluded to this already, but now he's going to say it explicitly. In, in Mark 10, he said, the son, of, the son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to say it even more explicitly now as he, as he explains the purpose of his death. Jesus' death was the result of a sinful plan, but it's also the result, a uh, sinful plot, but it's also the result of a sovereign plan. Look with me at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, so now it's Thursday, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. That was not normal. Men didn't carry pitchers of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. In one sense, these verses just get us to, to the, the room where Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, where he's going to institute the Lord's Supper, where he's going to predict his betrayal. But in another sense, it, it's, an, it's an object lesson. Remember, this is a very similar story to, to when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and he told his disciples, go and, and find where there's that colt that's tied up and take it. And, and if anybody asks what's going on, say the master has need of it. And Jesus is demonstrating his perfect foreknowledge of exactly what's going on. Showing, I'm in control. I know where that colt is. I know it's going to be okay for you to take it if you say this. So go ahead and, and go do it. And just like then, when it appeared that Jesus was at the height of his control, as he's coming into accolades, calling him the king, now, too, when we know that there's already a plot that's been hatched against him, Jesus is able to do the same thing. Jesus is not the, the victim of things spinning out of control. Jesus is still in complete control. He knows exactly what's happening. Verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating... Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This betrayal is not catching Jesus off guard. It's kind of the point of a betrayal is to catch somebody off guard, but Jesus knows about it. 
already. And four times he, he, he says that it's one of you. It's, it's one who is, who is eating with me. One who is, uh, and, and the disciples, verse 19, begin to be grieved. And they say, well, surely it's not me. And then Jesus says again, no, it's one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. That is one who's, who's eating with me right now. Highlights the closeness of the betrayal. It's the deepest kind of betrayal, but it's not catching Jesus off guard. He's known about it. In fact, he, he knows that it's Judas. No one else does, but he does. And he could have called Judas out then and there, couldn't he? He knows who it is. He could have said, one of you will betray me, and it's Judas. And we know from from later that night when they're in the garden, Peter has a sword and he's more than willing to use it to defend Jesus. And if Judas had been called out then and there, I'm sure Peter would have been happy to just run him through. And that would have been the end of the plot. Jesus could have avoided his death. But he didn't. Instead, he says this, verse 21, for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. He says that everything that's going on, including this betrayal by one of His disciples, is according to God's sovereign plan. Jesus' impending death is not merely the result of a sinful plot by wicked men. It's the result of the sovereign plan of God. It is no car wreck or accident of history. It is exactly what God designed. It is a crucial truth that the early church clearly recognized. If you go to the way that they preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you, you expect him to say by Judas, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Again, they say the same thing as they're praying in Acts 4. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God planned the death of Jesus. He's not surprised by anything. More than that, He actually orchestrates all things to accomplish His purposes. Amazingly, this includes God working through the sinful choices of His rebellious creatures. We saw it when we studied Genesis. We saw it in Joseph's life, right? Joseph gets sold into slavery and, and things appear to be really bad for Joseph for a really long time. And then you get to the end of the book and the, the brothers who have now repented are, are afraid that after Jacob dies, Joseph is finally going to take his revenge. And Joseph says, what you intended for evil... God intended for good and the saving of many lives. So that somehow through even the sinful choices of Joseph's brothers, 
God was able to accomplish his purposes. And we, there's a lot of tension here. We have questions about how this fits together and, and how is it possible for God to even use and superintend the sinful choices of people to accomplish his good purposes. How is it possible that God is not the, the author of sin? And, and there's, there's all sorts of uh, conversations we can have about that, but I think the idea that we're supposed to see in this text is that, that God is in control. The fact that God sovereignly works and orchestrates all the events of history from the most minute, like the disciples finding a guy with a water jug, to the most immense, like the death of the Son of God, that should bring us great comfort as Christians. And this is especially true when we face sin and suffering in our own lives. There are many of you who have experienced great tragedy, many of you who have been greatly sinned against, many of you who have faced great pain, and it is natural to wonder in those moments how God could uh, possibly bring good out of this. Right? It sure doesn't seem like God's in control. But He is. I want to tell you a quick story that illustrates this. When I was in Lebanon two years ago, uh, we went up into the mountains of Lebanon and went to this place, uh, Beit El Safa. It's a conference center up in the mountains of Lebanon. It's owned by the Free Evangelical Church of Beirut was given to that church in the 60s to be used as a conference and retreat center. But it was undeveloped because there were no resources to, to build new buildings and, and, and uh, do the upkeep and everything like that. So they owned it, but they weren't able to use it. And then during the Lebanese Civil War, which lasted for 17 years, 1975 to 1992, it was taken from the church and it was occupied by two different militaries, first a local militia and then the Israeli army. So this thing that had been given to the church for ministry was taken from them and used for the military. And then in 1992, it was returned to them. You have to be thinking, during this 17-year period where they have had this thing snatched away from them, they're thinking, how could that be good? How could it be good that this thing that was given to us is being used for this purpose? And they had it returned to them, I think they saw. It had been completely refurbished. The, the Israeli army had built barracks. They had cleared out a place that was going to be a, a helicopter landing pad. They had improved the roads. They had, they had uh, completely rebuilt this place. And then when they gave it back to the church, when the Israeli army left and the church came back in, they had a, a brand new conference center where they could do ministry for the gospel and have it subsidized by the Israeli Defense Force. But it took 17 years of waiting and trusting to see that. Did God lose control for 17 years and then suddenly get it back? No. 
God was always in control. It may not seem like it now. You may not have the answers you want now, and you may never get them, but God's sovereign plan is demonstrated even in something as terrible as the betrayal and execution of Jesus ought to encourage us that he can and does indeed work in all things according to the counsel of his will for the good of those who love him. As one commentator said, a God who is in control when the foundations of his own earthly existence are crumbling is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when it appears that our life is tumbling in. The master's mastery of his dark times gives us great hope during the darknesses which await us as a natural part of living. And so we're going to talk as we, as we go the next several weeks and, and look at what has led up to the, the death of Jesus about how significant it is, but, but know that this was no accident. This was God's sovereign plan to accomplish his purposes. Now we're going to move into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So if you are serving this morning, please uh, go into the kitchen and, and uh, get the elements. Because Jesus not only here tells us that his death is part of God's sovereign plan, he also tells us why his death is so significant. We don't have to guess why his death is important. He actually explains its purpose, and he does so through the Passover meal. So we're going to look briefly at what he says as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Look at verse 22. While they were eating, that is eating the Passover meal, this celebration, this commemoration of what God had done to rescue the people of uh, Israel out of Egypt, you remember the story, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn was going to be uh, what God used to, to, to break Pharaoh and allow uh, Israel to, to leave. And God said, the destroyer is going to come through and he's going to slay all the firstborn. But if you take a spotless lamb and you sacrifice it and you put its blood on the doorposts of your home, then the destroyer will see it and will pass over you. And so that in every home in Egypt, something died, either the firstborn or a lamb. The lamb was a, a substitute. And so the Israelites celebrated this meal in order to commemorate what God had done to, to rescue them. And normally at this meal, uh, the, the head of the house would be explaining all of these things. So I'll ask the servers to come forward and begin distributing the bread. So Jesus would begin explaining these things, but, but he goes off script. And he says, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. That wasn't part of the Passover liturgy. And then... He had taken the cup and given thanks, and he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many. See, Jesus is interpreting the Passover as talking about Him and His death. So as the elements are passed out, if you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation by grace alone, we welcome you to take the Lord's Supper with us. Now, if you're not taking refuge in Christ alone by faith, we would ask that you would please refrain from partaking. This is a celebration that symbolizes that we have personally come to trust Christ, and so it's only for believers. But even now, if you will place your trust in the Lord Jesus and His death and admit your own sinful plotting against God and entrust yourself to Him to save you from your sins by grace, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done who died in the place of sinners according to the sovereign plan of God, then you will be saved. Jesus offers Himself to you to be your Savior. As truly today through my words, as if He was here handing the elements to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus says, just to, to look at one phrase that he says, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Christ says that in my death, the new covenant that God promised to establish with his people is going to be inaugurated. Just like the Passover meal was this first uh, event in God's redemption of Israel and, and entering into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. So the death of Jesus is the first act in this new covenant. And the new covenant promises two big things, the forgiveness of sins and a new heart. And so Jesus is doing something remarkable. He's saying, I'm the true Passover lamb whose body and blood are going to be sacrificed to save those who trust God's promises concerning Him, and it will result in them being forgiven of their sins and given a new heart. His death is no accident. It was God's plan to bring about the forgiveness of sins for you, to give you a new heart. Take a moment, please, and give God thanks. Give Him praise for His abundant grace and sovereignly planning the death of Christ to redeem us from our sins. Father, we give you thanks that you sent your Son 
to be the propitiation for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God for us, that we might receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, as we grasp these tangible elements, help us to remember the reality that as surely as we hold the bread, so surely was Christ crucified for us, and as surely as it enters our body, so surely have our sins been forgiven and new life been imparted. In Jesus' name, amen. Take and eat. The body of Christ was broken instead of yours. Now as the cup is distributed, Benjamin is going to lead us in a song. How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch's treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds. I pay my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom.
Take and drink. The blood of Christ was shed instead of yours. As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for the sovereignly planned death of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might benefit from it. We give you thanks for your great love. Lord, we pray that we might come to trust you, even as Jesus himself trusted you and entrusted himself to you, even when it appeared like everything was, was crumbling around him, knowing that there is never a moment where you are not reigning from the throne. And so help us, Lord, to remember that this week in whatever we face. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a wonderful Sunday.